Well, good morning again. My name is Sean. Like I said, I'm the lead pastor here. And it's my joy to be walking with us through the book of Colossians today. And if you're one of our guests here today, when we get there, today's passage is going to be found on page 925 in that dark, uh, that black Bible there in front of you. And you're welcome to turn there now, especially if you're not familiar with the Bible that much. It's found on page 925. And for the rest of you, I mentioned that Mike is out of town, and when Mike's not here, things do fall apart, and so the wrong translation is printed in the bulletin. So you're going to want to use uh, that pew Bible, no, these aren't pews, that chair Bible, or your own Bible, or the ESV app when we, in just a moment when we read the text, because what's printed in the bulletin on page 10 is not the right translation. I started reading it last service, and I had never read that translation before, and I don't... <laughs> I don't particularly want to read whatever translation that is again. So, <laughs> no, but before we get to that, I do have to uh, make, I have to make an apology. Um, we believe here that God's word is inerrant, but the preaching of the word is not. And near the end of last week's sermon, especially in the first service, I was in error. Uh, in making an application to the way that we do the greeting time here, I used language that was derogatory. To the convictions of some of you. Uh, when this was pointed out to me, I reacted just like you react. I resisted and said, uh-uh. But upon looking into it, I definitely wished I could have a redo. Um, but real life doesn't have a big reset button, does it? So thank God for the gospel. I sinned against some of you, and I ask that you forgive me. That's actually a really good segue into the passage we're going to read today. So I invite you now to turn with me in your smartphones and your own Bibles or the chair Bible as we look together at uh, Colossians chapter 3, 12 through chapter 4, verse 1. <clears throat> this is God's Word. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. 
There is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray together. How gracious God and heavenly Father. Lord, as we come before your word today, part of your word that really challenges some of us, that upon a cursory reading immediately puts some of our guards up, Lord, we pray that you would let your truth overwhelm our hearts, that we would hear your truth, submit to your truth for our growth, for our transformation. We pray, Father, that we would see your mercy in Jesus in every word today. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, Paul ended with this call for Christians to be who they are in Jesus, basically. To, to put on the jersey of Team Jesus is the metaphor we use, and to, to not fight on the sidelines because the contest is out there. See, the false teachers had come into this little church, and they had brought divisions they, had, they wanted to rob God of the glory that he gets at the expression of the unity of God's people. Paul lists last week for us all these community-destroying vices, but then he shows us that in Jesus, we can put those things to death. In this section today, he then turns, and instead of the vices, he looks at what traditionally has been called virtues, in the church, the, the wonderful aspects of God's character that in Jesus we not only can display, but by the Holy Spirit we can actually become those kind of people. And Paul applies this in the three main spheres of life in the church, in the home or the family, and in the office. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this if you wear the jersey of Jesus' team, then in gratitude, step up at church, at home, and at work. And we get that theme primarily from verse 17, which is kind of the center of this whole text. Look with me at verse 17. Paul says this, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is the central thought of everything we just read. Whatever it is, you do it for Jesus in thankfulness to God. Everything is going to revolve around that idea because the false teachers came in and they want to add to Jesus, perhaps even ignore Jesus in seeking some sort of fullness that they were offering outside of the gospel. And Paul says, everything in your life that you are as a Christian, you do in the name of the Lord Jesus with gratitude. There's nothing that you skirt around Jesus to find something else. It's in Jesus. In other words, if you wear the jersey of Team Jesus, in gratitude, you step up in life, specifically in these three spheres. So the first sphere he, cho he shows us here is at church. In these first couple of verses, he gives us such a beautiful picture, a vision of what the church is in God's sight. Paul the former Pharisee, the prime teacher of Israel, one of the most educated men of his day, uses Old Testament language for Israel and applies it to the church. He calls him God's 
chosen ones, holy and beloved. And he's reminding them that the church of Jesus Christ is the new Israel, the true Israel, the only Israel. And as God's nation, Team Jesus, he then tells these Christians to put on. What do they put on? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. All great things. Why does he have to tell them to put this on? Because sometimes, I know this is hard to believe, but people in the church can be hard to get along with. I know it's just at Colossae and other churches. I know, not here. Thus, he gets to verse 13 and says, what? Bear with one another, assuming that people are going to do things. You just got to kind of go, oh, all right. Even more, he says, if one Christian has to complain against another Christian, forgive. That's it. You just forgive. No caveats. If there's a complaint between Christians, just forgive. What? Why would we ever do something like that? Well, he tells us. Because Christians are riddled with sin ourselves. And in our relationship to God, it's always our fault. And yet, without caveat, Jesus forgave us at the price of his own body and blood. And now Jesus himself said in the Gospels, and now Paul repeats it here, that it is a mark of salvation to be able to forgive. Or to put it negatively, if you can't forget someone... Jesus Christ himself says, you're not a Christian. If someone offends you, you have a complaint, if you're a Christian, you just forgive them. That's it. And most importantly, he says, put on love. He, he, the metaphor he uses there is like the glue that binds everything together. It was sometimes used to describe a cloak you would wrap around yourself in cold weather. Put it all together in love so you can have harmony, he says. We could translate that completeness or perfection. Team Jesus at church puts on compassion and forgiveness in conflict. That's how we do conflict in the church. I want to make sure you guys are feeling this. Let's look together at the boys and girls translation. That's on page 11. Let's look in the middle there at verses 14 and 15. It says this, most importantly... We wrap each other up in a blanket of love so that the peace of Jesus can rule us and make us thankful to be his true family. What a beautiful picture of of, of God's family here in the church, what God wants his family to look like. We wrap ourselves up in love when we actually submit to the rule of Christ's peace. Did you notice that? That's our ruler. That's what we submit to, and we do that in thankfulness. You see, you bring this all together. When we're thankful, we just don't have room, or as they would say today, we just don't have bandwidth to get our feelings hurt and upset by others because we're too focused on the fact that we were forgiven first by God. And we're so deep into that gratitude that we're like, sure, I forgive you, whatever. God forgave me. Can you believe it? It helps us to bear with others when we recognize how much gratitude we should have with God. I want you to feel this. I want you to take a moment here, and I want you to think about your good daydreams, like the kind of daydreams that you're not embarrassed to share with someone else, right? Okay, those good ones. Um, Like maybe it's a stressful time at work. 
Or maybe something has happened and you just need to have like your happy place. Think of your happy place right now. Maybe your, your one day, someday life. Maybe it involves a beach for some of you. Not a big fan of sand, but hey, you do you. Maybe it involves mountains. Maybe it involves lots of people being around. Maybe it involves no people being around. <laughs> you got it? You got, you got your dream? You got it? All right, I want you to look at your heart right now and think about the emotions you have, how you feel right now. And then see in this text that what Paul has outlined for us right here is God's daydream for his church. This is what God longs for his people to look like in the church. This vision, this dream of God is why in the fullness of time he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us from the curse of the law so that in Jesus empowered by his Holy Spirit, we can be that community, his family on earth, Team Jesus. And what do we do as this family? We worship. Look with me how he outlines it in verse 16. He says this. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He gives this beautiful picture and he says, look, this kind of community only happens when the word of Christ, the Bible, inhabits us abundantly, lives inside of us completely. And from that treasury of resources, of God's word itself, from that we teach and challenge each other. See, the false teachers came in denigrating God's word and they were teaching and exalting, or not exalting, exhorting and, and, and challenging other Christians based on their preferences and their, their particular beliefs. And Paul says, no, God's word does that and only God's word does that. And that's the community of peace because God's word dwells in us, plural, richly. Christians challenge each other only with scripture is what Paul says. And then he says in our worship life, God's word determines what we, or how we worship, especially in our singing. It's kind of a, if you follow the flow here, this is a weird turn in the argument. P perhaps the false teachers denigrated singing, and so Paul has to go here. We really don't know. We just have, we don't know what exactly they were teaching. We, all we have is Paul's response. So for some reason, Paul had to talk about singing at this point and how it's, how it's based in God's word. That the new humanity of Jesus with God's word actually in them, these people sing in worship. And what do they, what do they sing? Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So much ink has been spilled in the last 2,000 years on these three divisions. So many PhD dissertations, so many harangues, so many whatever you want to call it by people who are way smarter than me. And I'm not going to get into any of that stuff. But I can tell you very simply how the first readers at Colossae would have taken these three things. Psalms. That's kind of like a layup, right? That's the Old Testament book of Psalms, that when Paul came and brought the gospel to them, he would have handed them what's called the Septuagint. It's the Greek Old Testament. It was the Bible of the, of the New Testament church. He gave them this, and they would have sung psalms in worship from the Bible. Easy. These are inspired songs of praise about God. Hymns. This was actually a Gentile music form of singing odes to the gods, small g, or singing songs of praise 
to divine heroes who had done stuff on earth. Think about like um, Hercules and all the songs to Hercules. What they did is they took that form and they adapted them as Christians and started singing hymns of praise to Jesus as the divine hero. If you want to see an example of this kind of form, you can actually turn to Acts 13. And in his sermon on Mars Hill, Paul actually quotes from a hymn of praise to Zeus at the time. It's in there. It's set apart as a quote. You can find it. Spiritual songs. The New Testament church took those two things, the inspired Old Testament songs, their cultural form of a hymn, and they put them together into what Paul calls a spiritual song. And these were odes of praise to the triune God for the divine hero of Jesus. That's how they would have read this. And Paul says, that's how you worship God. And working through all of that, he says, is thankfulness. Because it's in thankfulness as we sing that we let go of our preferences. And by the Spirit, we put on these virtues. And in Jesus, we live out God's dream for humanity. In other words, if you wear the jersey of Jesus' team, then in gratitude, step up at church, at home, and in the office. So the next thing we see is stepping up at home. All right, so those of you who've read ahead, those of you who might be a little bit more progressive in your mindset, those of you who might be women, um, would you please put down whatever you have that you're about to throw at me? Um, I, I didn't write any of this, just for the record. If I weren't committed to God's word as being authoritative and inerrant, um, I would skip this because I'm a coward. But let's walk through God's word together as friends. So, Jesus' church, Paul says, lives out God's dream for humanity because empowered by the Holy Spirit, we submit to the rule of Christ in our hearts. That's all verse 15. So too, by the Holy Spirit, we can submit then to the various roles we have at home. And before we walk through this verse by verse, I want to look at them uh, in aggregate, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Let's look at them together to get the feel of it. So let's all look at verses 18 through 21 in the kids' translation. Here's what Paul is saying. For Jesus, wives, choose to listen to your husbands. For Jesus, husbands, love your wives and don't make them sad or angry. For Jesus, children, do what your parents tell you to do. For Jesus, fathers, don't bother your kids or make them sad. All right, here's what's going on, all right? So in Roman culture, they had certain expectations, especially for the upper class, about how they were supposed to act. And one of the things that's pretty famous, you may have heard this before, it was the concept of the pater familias, the father of the family. It was specific culturally outlined roles. The man in Rome rules his family. But here, verse 15, for Christians, the peace of Jesus rules the family. For Rome, the man instructed people in their various roles into what he wants. But here, notice, the word instructs people in their roles for what God wants. In Rome, the man mediated all the information. He got it and he took it to you. You didn't talk directly to the source. But here, the word addresses each role directly 
as equals under its authority. In the context of the time, if you'll just dial it back from what you would expect today, this is really radical progressive stuff. If you really get this, you'll understand, oh, that's why Paul kept getting run out of town everywhere he went. Because he was a rabble-rouser, counterculture revolutionary. All right, let's jump in. So verse 18, wives, submit as is fitting or as is due, as is proper in the Lord. In other words, for Jesus, you willingly submit to your husband. This is a section that is a specific application to the family. There is no warrant to say this extends out as a societal principle. In other words, women, you are not called to submit to men. Men, do not act as if women are supposed to submit to men. That's paganism. That's not Christianity. I have raised, I am raising three very strong daughters. I have trained them not to expect some prince to come rescue them. They're going to go rescue the prince themselves, okay? And unless you marry one of them, good luck trying to get them to submit to you. Because they don't have to. Wives, since you wear the identity of the new humanity in Jesus, you are empowered by the Holy Spirit as one who submits to the rule of the peace of Christ, verse 15, as one under that authority, you also are empowered, therefore, to submit to your husband for Jesus' sake. And he doesn't give it a nuance, and he doesn't give it a caveat. But my husband doesn't help with the dishes. Submit for Jesus' sake. But he doesn't pray with me. Submit for Jesus' sake. But he's always upset and stressed. Submit for Jesus' sake. But this is not the life I envisioned. Submit for Jesus' sake. Husbands, perhaps you might be tempted occasionally to remind your wife of verse 18. Let me remind you, before you do that, that in this family code, the men have twice as many instructions as the wives. As the British would say, we have quite enough to be getting along with ourselves before we help our wife with verse 18. Because husbands are to love your wives and not be harsh with them. The word that God uses to describe his people in verse 12, beloved, it's the word agape. It's the exact same word used here. It says, just as God agapes his people, husbands, agape your wives. You don't have to go to the Ephesians version of this text where it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. In the context, it's already there. God agapes his people. And guess what, husbands? You agape your wife like God does. And don't make them bitter. That's what harsh means. Don't embitter them. Oh, the repeated, I mean like repeated most often on, on repeat pastoral counseling situation that I get in is a man will come to me and he will say in some form or another, um, my wife is broken, can you fix her? <laughs> and usually it's something along the lines of she is basically bitter. And I will say, I can't fix your wife. But, and I will take him to this passage and I will say, the fact that your wife is firmly planted in the second part of verse 19 means you've put her there by not doing the first part of verse 19. Let's talk about you. 
my marital counseling is very popular with men, just so you know. <laughs> right, because husbands agape, selflessly love your wives. No caveats. But she doesn't cook, agape. But she doesn't do what I want her to do, agape. But she doesn't zip it, agape. And if that's not a heavy enough burden on us men, we get to verse 21. Not provoke our children lest they become discouraged. Don't exasperate them to the point where they just give up. Don't raise your hands. But adults, how many of you have an uh, interesting relationship with your dad? Your dad was just so exacting. You could never please him. And you just gave up. I know it's not all of you. I'm not saying it is. But it's so, so common, isn't it? That's this verse. Dads, your children are not an expression of your personhood. Dads, your reputation and worth is not on the line in the behavior of your children. Dads, you don't have to demand perfection from your children so you look good. In Jesus, you can love them in all their imperfections exactly as God loves you in yours. Kids, do what your parents say for Jesus. That's pretty simple. It's actually one of the Ten Commandments. Y'all probably knew that. Did you know it's the first commandment with a promise? Obey your parents, and it will go well for you. God will bless that because God, our Heavenly Father, cherishes our obedience. And so He rewards you, kids, when you reflect what He cherishes by obeying your parents in His name. I know it's 2023, and everything I just said sounds so traditional and regressive. But again, for its time, it was so countercultural in its mercy. Paul, by addressing it this way in a publicly read letter to the church, he assumes, we could even say demands, that wives and children be in the room listening to this, hearing this letter read out loud publicly. The paterfamilias code said, no, just read it to the men. They all gather, and they'll tell their wives and children what it said. And Paul says, no, I ain't talking to you about them. I'm talking to them about you, actually. They're all equal under God's authority when Paul addresses them directly like this. Because if you wear the jersey of Team Jesus, then in gratitude you step up at church, at home, and at work. And so this passage ends talking about work. Really it talks about slaves. It says bond service to make it sound better. It's slaves. Another difficult thing to talk about in our day and age. But again, by addressing slaves directly Paul assumes, even demands, that they are in the room hearing this authoritative letter read out loud in public worship because they are of equal footing before the Lord. He shows that both they and masters have responsibilities. In the Roman culture, only the, only the slaves had responsibilities. Paul says, no, you both do, actually. Keep in mind Slavery was so common in the ancient world across all cultures. And in ancient Rome, it was not racial. Anybody of any background could become a slave. 
In fact, people would and did voluntarily sell themselves into slavery to change their economic status. So all of the angst, everything that you kind of feel in your gut about our particular history with slavery, it's just not really applicable to the Roman system. It's just not. So the best way really to appropriate this instruction for us today is to basically see how we demonstrate that we are on Team Jesus at work. Specifically, the relationship that we all have as employees to bosses and bosses to employees. In verses 22 through 24, Christian employees obey their bosses from the heart because they're really working for Jesus. You don't just work hard when you're being scrutinized, but instead... Again, remember verse 17, which everything orbits around verse 17. You're always doing a good job because Jesus is your ultimate boss. Even if you dislike your boss, even if you hate your job, you do a good job as a Christian because Jesus ultimately receives your work as worship unto him. That's the carrot. Then we have the stick in verse 25. Jesus will pay back the wrongdoer, even if it's someone in his family. As a Christian, you purposely do a bad job or just enough. Or maybe you steal, you undermine. Jesus takes that personally and he will pay you back for it. Let's avoid the pagan concept of karma, but there is a clear promise here that it's not going to go well for you if you purposely choose to be a bad employee as a Christian. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, we get to management. There's, wonderful, there's a, a wonderful play on words here, and the ESV translation really grabs it well. The word Lord that has been used throughout this passage for the Lord Jesus unto the Lord, it can also be translated master, and it usually is when it refers to humans in authority. Paul here means master in both usages, both when he refers to your earthly boss and when he refers to Jesus, and the ESV keeps that, your master. Basically, he says, look, bosses... Treat your employees just like your boss's boss, you you know, Jesus, treats you. And how is that? Justly and fairly, or what is equitable and proportional. You don't play favorites. You don't manipulate. You're not passive-aggressive. You're honest with praise and criticism because you have a boss in heaven who does all those things for you. Oh, there's so much more that could be said here. I, I know, the, the Christian life at work is such a huge, huge deal. Maybe we'll have a Sunday school class or a series about that. I don't know. There's so much more, but it, it comes down to this. If you wear the jersey of Jesus' team, then you, in gratitude, you step up at church, at home, and at work. All right, let's wrap this up. Paul addresses Christians here as holy and beloved and he, he reminds us of all the resources we have in the gospel, that we can embody these virtues. We can actually become these virtues because in, we are in Jesus, who is the holy and beloved one. And when you place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, you not only get this new title as the new humanity, his family, but you get given the resources to be this person the person you really wish you were, and to be in the kind of loving family you dream about. All of that is available to you, dear Christian, in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, which we will commemorate in a few moments at this table.
Now, if you're here today and you, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, do you want to be part of this kind of humanity? I mean, if God's dream for people is your dream for people, then you should want the gospel to be true. Cast off everything you've looked to for salvation and simply place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone in the gospel. And don't wait. And do it now. Let's pray together. How gracious God and Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for challenging us in a way that makes us uncomfortable. And we pray, Lord, today that what has been said that is of you will be burned into our hearts and our minds. And what has been said that's not will be forgotten. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be the new humanity in Jesus. Putting on your jersey. Living out your truth at church and home and at work. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.